Thanks, guys. Howdy, High Point. The only church in Madison where the pulpit drag is part of the liturgy. Um, so, most of you know that last week we said we were going to do two weeks on vision. And so, um, you came to church. That was, that's great. Um, so, so here's something I feel like I need to talk about at the beginning of this, because here's my presumption. My presumption is that there are certain people here who have heard vision talks before, and you just, like, already have a bad attitude about it, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, it's, I mean, I mean, it's just, he's gonna, he's gonna put some window dressing on the asking for money, but this is really just gonna come down to, like, we're gonna, what are we gonna do, a building campaign or something, right? Um, and so, let me, I, you just need to know something about what a preacher is, okay? So let's, let's pull back for a second. And, and, think, and figure out what a pre- Here's what a preacher is It's the person with the right to talk Who has no authority to make you do anything Okay That's what a preacher is, is so I, It's my job To come up and with the, to the best of my ability Try to persuade you By argument and pleading That something is true and worthwhile And worth responding to and so on And then I have zero ability To 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 force you, to coerce you, to pressure you to do anything. Okay? So that's how this works. So you don't have to worry about me pressuring you. I don't know how much anybody gives. I don't care about that. That's not what the sermon's about. No, 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 But I'm going to do my job. Right? And so we're going to do it in two parts. This first sermon is going to have—has nothing to do with High Point in particular. Um, that is, it, with our plan as a church— but it has everything to do with the church. And so therefore, to the extent to which we are a church that loves Jesus, it has everything to do with us. It just doesn't have to do with our specific plan. I'm going to get to that next week. Um, but part of the, the issue with doing a vision talk is whether or not it's even really possible. One of the, one of the passages I've been reading a, a bit the last few months and been praying with our staff is this one from Ephesians 3 that says this, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It strikes me that the likelihood that I have even imagined a vision that is sufficiently incredible to even share is fairly low. Right? This explicitly says that— he is the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Right? And it makes sense to one to say, and then, and then, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ. It's very easy to take from that. That's right. In the church, we should seek to glorify God. We should seek to, you know, tell God he's— that's, But that's not actually what the verse means. Because this little preposition there, in, is actually pretty open. But look at this one here. Same one, right? In Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Right? You see, in in this verse actually means through. That God would be glorified through the work of Christ. Right? And in the church. In this context, through, through the church. Right? It's N in Greek, but it's— The context is through the church. And through the work of Jesus Christ, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And that he's able to do, because of the power working in us, 
more than we can ask and more than we can imagine. So let's pray. I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, we're going to keep going with the sermon. Um, in Matthew's gospel, there's a point where Jesus talks about the church for the first time. And he hasn't even made one yet. He really still just has disciples. And he's going through some places. People are talking about him. And he goes, who, who do they say I am? Right? So this is the passage. Uh, oh, sorry. That's the passage. Jesus asked them, who do they say I am? And Simon Peter answered, one of his disciples, you are the Christ, or the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you're Peter. Peter is Petros in Greek. It means rock, right? So it's kind of a pun. You're Peter, and on this rock, Petros, right, I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it. Now, in the last five of 500 years, there have been a lot of arguments, a lot of ink spilt, and a lot of swords swung over what rock means there. Whether rock is the confession, Protestants, or Peter the man as the first pope, the Catholics. But there isn't really actually any controversy about what it refers to, which is the most important thing in the passage to a certain extent because it's the thing the gates of hell can't stand against, and that is the church. That through the gospel and through the first generation of the church and through Peter, he was going to create something called the church and the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. Which, of course, many preachers like to point out that gates are not offensive but defensive weapons. That is, all of the fortifications of evil, in, spiritually speaking, in the world will not be able to hold their ground against the church when Jesus sends it out. They're one of the—I'm not a— I'm not a World War II buff, but last year I read, or two years ago, I read all of the papers of General George Patton because apparently he was immensely annoying to everybody in his life, and I thought I could identify with that, so I decided <laughs> to read his papers. And in one of the places, he was talking about preparing for combat on the continent, and he said, I'm assured that we're going to win. Of course, nobody was sure at that point that the Allies were going to win, but he was positive, and here was his argument. He said, because of the way the weapons are right now, it is impossible to defend. Because, because we now have airplanes that drop bombs, because we have more, much more advanced artillery, because we have tanks and we can move a lot faster, because we have repeating firing weapons rather than single firing weapons, the, uh, the ability to attack has increased exponentially and the ability to defend has not increased as much. And so all I'm going to do is attack. And of course that drove all the other generals crazy because they would take some place and then fortify it and take some place and then fortify it. And Patton just kept going. Just attack, 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 attack. There's one point where he ran out of tanks. He had people go to barns and find boats so they could cross the river and keep attacking. He attacked and ran out of fuel, couldn't even get kept attacking because he fundamentally believed as soon as you defended, you are sitting duck with these weapons. So you just got to keep attacking. And here's what I would argue about the spiritual weaponry of the Christian life. I actually, I believe that in the wisdom of God, that is how God has equipped us. That God has equipped us with spiritual weapons that work great when we're attacking the gates of hell, but work terrible when we hole up and defend ourselves. So that when we're striking out for the redemption of people, they work great. When we're on mission, it works great. And, but the minute we stop, we say, well, let's keep this spot. We're toast. They just don't work. They don't work for that. The gates of hell won't stand up against it. And, and a lot of books have been written actually in the last several years about what the real mission of the church is. What's the real mission of the church, right? Is it political? Is it kingdom care? Is it—I mean, what is it? Well, there's a lot of stuff you can argue from the whole of Scripture that's somehow related to the mission of the church. But there's really only one explicit commandment that Jesus gave the church. 
This is one place where he explicitly told the church what to do. Now, this will have a lot of implications, but there's only one command as to what the church is supposed to do. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, does that mean we won't do any stuff that's not evangelism or discipleship? No, because when people start obeying everything that Jesus commanded them, they're going to do a lot of really good stuff in culture and in society, right? That's going to happen. And when they do it together, they might do it as a church. So it's not like the church can't do anything good. But the, the focus of the mission of what the church is, is make disciples of all nations. To take on his name in baptism and to learn to become his follower in obeying everything he's commanded, right? It's pretty explicit. And so one of the questions that we have to ask whenever we're thinking about whether or not we're on vision is, can you imagine that? I mean, that's what vision is, right? It's a, it's a picture of hope in the mind. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a church that is involved in changing the world and reaching out to every people on the earth with the gospel? Actually actively seeking to make disciples of all nations. I mean, can you imagine a church that is actually engaging and equipping people with the gospel? In their city and in their neighborhoods and throughout all the relational networks of the people who go there. I mean, can you imagine, in the words of Jeremiah 29, a church that's living for the peace and prosperity of the secular city in which it exists, but inviting people, in the words of Augustine, to be citizens of the heavenly city at the same time and with even more earnest? And can you imagine—okay, let me put it this way. Can you imagine a church in which— you would believe that the people who go there really believe that the gospel is great, that the work of Christ is sufficient to set us right with God and to reshape us into what we are made to be, that, the, that scripture has both an authority that we obey and a sweetness to it that we love, and that God is transcendently great and sovereign. He is truly the ruler over all things and bringing things to the glorious conclusion in which he's set them for. I mean, that, where you went to that church and by the way people behaved and talked and acted and felt and expressed, that you would be like, those people really think that. I mean, they might, they might be wrong, but they really think that. And if you can imagine it, does it, does it do anything for you? Right? Tim Keller tweeted this week, all the subtlety in 160 or whatever characters, right? Um, the lack of joy in your life is due to your lack of mission. And maybe the lack of the ability to defend, right? Now, I want to tell you a story about two Christians that made a difference in this area that has nothing to do with the church. Um, but it doesn't start with them. It starts with this guy, who all of you recognize as Professor Samuel P. Langley of the Smithsonian Institute from the turn of the 18th century. 19th century? Of course. Right, Maria? Yeah. Um, Samuel P. Langley was the best-known scholar and engineer in aeronautics in 1893 or so. And the Department of War of that time gave its largest research grant ever to him to come up with the first manned flying machine. He was over budget after three or four years, and so he raised another $20,000 from private, um, for private donors. And he built what was called the first—well, he named it the Great Aerodrome. I mean, if people give you that kind of money, you, you need to—whatever you build, you got to name it something good, right? So he named it the Great Aerodrome, and it was, it was tested on October 7th, 1903. And then again, he, he tested it again um, in Dece December 14th, 1903. The first time, it just didn't fly, and they were able to, like, refly it. And then the second time, it ended like that, Right? 
And it was, this wasn't the only failure that he suffered in this period of time, because if the second Sherlock Holmes movie is accurate at all, he was also Professor James Moriarty. <laughs> and so he also apparently failed to kill Sherlock Holmes. So there's that. Uh, but uh, about, the, about the other thing, the New York Times actually wrote this, October 9th, 1903, af- two days after his first attempt. He said— well, the, the editorial writer said, The ridiculous fiasco which attended the attempt at aerial navigation and the Langley flying machine— they wouldn't even call it the great aerodrome, right? The Langley flying machine was not unexpected. It might be assumed that the flying machine, which will really fly, might be evolved by the combination and continuous efforts of mathematicians and mechanicians in the form of one million to ten million years. Yeah, the wisdom of the newspaper editor, right? But it felt that way. Like, it just felt like this is— like Listen, I mean, think about it. If Samuel P. Langley, the smartest guy of his time, who runs the Smithsonian, who gets the largest grant ever from the Department of War, who gets— who gets— other capital from other sources as well, who has access to all the learning of its time and all the smart people that he can find and access to all the construction materials and all the best builders and all can't build it. It's impossible. It can't be done. Right? And so part of my question here is, is that how we think about the gospel? Really? See, my fear is, is that the, you know, when God says, I'm going to save the world— I think what—you know what I think you and I think is, yeah, so he's going to raise up some Superman or some huge organization or some greater generation than ours, and he's going to—he's going to do—yeah, sure, I'll bet he'll do that. And, and if he doesn't, it'll take a million years or ten million years, right? Um, it was actually achieved, man flight, eight days later. eight days later. And it would have been seven days later. Do you know why it wasn't seven days later? Because they rested on Sunday, because both of the Wright brothers were devout biblical Christians, and they wouldn't attempt to fly on a Sunday, even though the conditions were perfect. They waited till Monday, so it was was nine or eight days. I can't remember. It was was a few days later. And the—here's the thing— the, what were these guys? They were nothing. These were guys who basically ran a bicycle shop and were bored with bikes, okay? And they had flown little planes as kids, and they just believed this was possible. And so they were not large—they or, weren't a large organization. They didn't have piles of money. They were hobbyists, but they were passionate hobbyists. And you see, I think that's important for us because what are most of us going to be in Christian ministry, Right? Most of us aren't going to do this with the work hours of our day. In fact, there's a lot of weeks where I feel like I should go get a job and do, and do this on the side. It'd probably be more emotionally healthy, right? Sometimes. Get around some non-Christians. Most of us are going to be hobbyists. And it's not, it's not that our work isn't meaningful. The, the Bible talks about work being intrinsically valuable, and it's also a mechanism by which we go out into the world and we're with everybody else, and so we can be on mission while we're doing our work, which is intrinsically meaningful. But we're also, if we're on mission at all, we're these divine hobbyists. We're, we're pa- but we're passionate about it, and we can accomplish, even as hobbyists, things that all the biggest organizations, all the resources of the world, all the wisest people can't. Um, 
eight days, so eight days after that first flight, uh, the Wright brothers had a, a machine called the Flyer. A little bit less ostentatious name. Still optimistic, though, right? It cost about $1,000 to build, and it flew six or seven times. And it was, there was a lot of trial and error. And they—one of their buddies, who was like an aluminum mechanic who'd like never built an engine, built the engine for it. I mean, I mean these guys were like— Classic. They were building out of bike parts and trying to come up with the right wood to build propellers, and they'd break, and they'd make new ones, and it was just trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, closer, 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 closer. And one of the things I think is really telling about these guys, and I don't know if it's humility that came from their Christian faith or not, but they didn't care about succeeding. Like, you would think, like, it was their dream to build the first flying machine. It actually wasn't. Wilbur Wright never intended to succeed and build a flying machine. He just was so passionate about aeronautics and the idea that someone would day would fly that he thought if he worked the rest of his life as a hobbyist, he might be able to make some little innovation that could help the person who finally succeeded. He wrote a letter to the Smithsonian because there was a point where they were getting into it and they were gathering evidence. They're trying to find out all the research that had been done. You couldn't just go on the internet in those days, right? So he wrote a letter to the Smithsonian where Samuel P. Langley worked, and this is what he said. I've been interested in the problem of mechanical, of mechanical instrument flight ever since I was a boy and constructed a number of tiny toy planes of various sizes. My observations have only convinced me more firmly, okay? That's another way of saying conviction. Convinced me more firmly that human flight is possible and practicable. I'm an enthusiast, not a crank. I love that sentence. Right? It's like, it's the way, his way of saying, um, I'm a nerd, not a snob. Right? I'm an enthusiast, not a crank, and I have no pet theories about the proper construction of the flying machine. I wish to avail myself of all that is already known, and then, if possible, add my might, my tiny contribution, to help the future work who may, the worker who may finally attain success. That was his mentality, you see? He never thought he'd succeed. He just thought if he worked the rest of his life, he might come up with something, some little contribution that would get us all a little closer. And, I, I, and that was fairly helpful because I don't know if you know this, but when they first came out and told the public that they had experienced, that they'd flown, do you know what happened? They were ridiculed as charlatans for a pretty good period of time. They were treated as these, these rogue cranks that like, were just a bunch of liars to try to steal some press. But it didn't—and one of the other um, scientists at the time who had a relationship with him said, you know, it was really interesting how they, how they handled themselves. They handled themselves so patiently. Well, it's because their dream wasn't being destroyed. Their dream was never to be famous or even to succeed. It was always just to passionately pursue what they had a conviction and could see in their imagination could be, which is some kind of contribution to flight. And nothing changed that. Nobody could steal that from them. It's very easy for us to wait for big solutions, but we, that is the church of Jesus Christ, we are God's solution. And not just some, some ethereal church or some, some idea of the universal church of all people who believe in Jesus. There is such a thing. There is the church, the church, all people who believe in Jesus. But there, that is not the plan of God. But for the fact that there are those people in particular churches— who are real people. It's so easy to get this idea of the universal church. The universal church isn't any better than the local church, friends. Have you ever thought that through? 
It's really easy to be like that, that guy who's like 19 and imagines this woman that he's going to marry. And she, she's this like, a, like this hypothetical woman. Well, here's the problem. There's no such woman. Like literally, there isn't one. Like, and so, you know, every time he goes around and nothing ever really quite matches. And it's, it's very easy to realize that that's how we can think of the universal. Oh, Jesus Church. It's just all the people who believe in Jesus. And I'm part of that. Oh yeah, you are part of that. That's absolutely true. But you know what? That church looks about like this one. And it is that church God said is his hope. And it, this is not the first time that God has been not ostentatious and extremely subtle and minimalist in how he brings about his own glory. Remember from 1 Corinthians last week where Paul said, listen, you remember when we got saved? Most of us, we were not the smartest cookies. Like, we were not the sharpest knives in the shed, right? We weren't the most important. We didn't have the most money. We weren't—but God is—God intentionally chose us partly to shame the wise, the strong, the rich, and so on, to show that he brings redemption because he's glorious, not because we're super. And so— when we, when we realize that, we recognize that, that God's always worked like that. For example, I don't know if you know the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. There's this, there's this story about when, after Jerusalem had been destroyed and its walls had been torn down and destroyed, and there's this guy, Nehemiah, who heard about it. He was like way in Persia, and he'd heard about it, and he had a passion. He, he, he believed that was wrong. That the, the city of God's walls needed to be rebuilt. That he could see it in his mind's eye. And it was like a moral certainty inside him it had to be done. And so he said, I want to go back and build it. And so he went and, and the emperor actually gave him, like said, okay, go do it and here's some money. And so he got back and he's like, I'm going to have the, I'm going to have the Persians behind me. This is going to happen. He gets there and he's, he's outside of arm's length of the emperor. And people are like, you're not rebuilding stuff. And, he, and for all, for all the hope that he had, that it was going to kind of get built for him, he realized that wasn't going to happen. They were going to have to build it. The people who already lived in the city were going to have to pick up bricks and build it themselves. And for all of the way God provided through the emperor, there were some things that were provided. Ultimately, what happened was the people in Jerusalem built their own wall. God provided, but they built it. In fact, there's this one verse that I really like where it says, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. And, and notice it doesn't say, and their husbands, which it probably would have if they were of that age and married. Because if you read through that section, it's very specific about who everybody was. Names everyone. So if it's this guy and his daughters, they're probably unmarried, and therefore they're probably younger. Because apparently he's a relatively important guy. If you're an important guy and you have daughters with no husbands, they're probably younger, right? So you can kind of imagine this guy, like he's a city alderman, right? And him and his, like, he's got like a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old, you know, that's out mouthing off to him now. And then he's got like a 15-year-old. And they're like, you know, they're like, sweetie, get that brick. Right. Yeah, sweet, you get the little one there. No, don't eat the, don't eat the mortar. Don't, you know. <laughs> And, you know, he's, he's like, he's like, but with his own hands. He's built, I mean, I mean, think about how outside of our minds that is. You're like, I mean, you think, oh, the Bible, that's a great story. Do you know what this is? That's like us expanding Route 14 and us doing this section of it. Like, literally, like us leave it, we get our pickaxes and stuff, and we walk out to 14. Well, no, he's going to build this for us. We're not going to get some federal government grant. We're going to have to build it. We walk out there, and we are, there's, there's Madisonians as far as the eye can see. Down Route 14, people breaking up their little foot of it. And like, you know, mixing them. I mean, literally, that's what this is like. And that's what they did. I mean, this wall's like seven miles. 
And it's one brick at a time, just built it. That was God's plan. Why do we think it's different? Why are we looking for Superman? Why are we looking for some huge organization? Why are we looking— why are we looking to some greater generation? It's never been that way. It's always been one brick at a time, one faithful step at a time, one group of people who would stay on mission, believe God, believe what he was doing, believe what he wanted, walk in that direction, be able to see in the conviction of our heart what our physical eyes are never going to see. There's two things that kind of get in our way of that. One is acceptance. That is this, that everyone lives either by sight or by vision. That's cheeky, right? Everybody lives by sight or by vision. There's a lot of things that are both and. This is almost a full either or. That is, that whenever you make a decision, whenever you reason through something, on some level you are either either reasoning through something on the basis of what you can see, personally predict, and what is— fits with your natural experience, or there is, a, there is some kind of moral conviction about the way the world should be, and you're ready to exert yourself to see that the world is that way. You either reason out of one way or the other. Very, very seldomly can you really reason with both at the same time. And one of the things that stands in the way of us accepting what God has called us to do is, is that we accept seeing with our eyes. What vision really is, is a convictional imagination. It's, that's different than an emotional dream, right? It's not the same thing as like a Disney princess, okay? It's not like, oh, I feel emotionally like about this and I have this dream and it's mostly about me. No, a convictional imagination isn't about you at all because it's a, it's a moral conviction that, that supersedes and surpasses you. It's something that actually takes you and what you want and puts you aside and says, this is bigger than you. This matters. This you must do. And it gets inside of you on the level of a conviction. That is, it's linked into your conscience and you can't shut your conscience up about it. And then it gets released by means of hope through your faculties of imagination. And it produces something that you can see in your mind's eye. It's your convictional imagination, which is very different than an emotional dream. In that you're not at the center of it. It it comes like a moral imperative from your conscience. And it engages your imagination in a not-you-centered Morally and God-centered kind of way The second thing is diversion Because what do you think happens immediately When we accept When we see with our eyes rather than by vision Immediately what happens is Everything in our life that was meant to be pointed towards the vision Gets diverted into something else Right So the, the saying that I put together for this is What's most convertible is most divertible Divertible is not actually a word. But I'm a talker for a living. I get to make words up. What's most convertible is most divertible. Think about it this way. What are the most convertible things in your life? There's two main things that are the most convertible in your life. Your money and your time, right? And money's more convertible than time because you have to spend time as you go, right? You can't save time. You can save money, and if you save it, sometimes you can make more of it, and you can change anything. Think about that. Like, you got money, you can buy a new phone, you can go on vacation, you can adopt an orphan, you can buy sushi. You can all do all that with money, right? Right? So, there it is. It's just, it's—and listen, that's one of the reasons why most of us don't have piles of money laying around. I mean, have you ever noticed that you don't have a pile of money in your house? 
Like I, I, like, I mean, think about pastors, you know, pastors preach on giving. Here's what never happens. Pastor goes, you know, I just believe God wants us to do some things. What do you think about, you know, contributing more to that than you have in the past? And people go home, you know, like Lexi and I go home from church. We go, oh, you know what the pastor said? I was, oh, Lexi, we forgot about the pile of money. Remember the pile of money? It's just, I don't know, there's piles of it here. We got more over there. Where did all this money come from? I mean, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, who has a pile of money at their house? Nobody. And some people like, okay, the geeks would be like, well, that's because I'd have it invested. It wouldn't be a pile of money. No, but... <laughs> but that just proves my point, snarky head, um, that that which we don't convert into something naturally diverts into something else. You know, like, think about it. Why? Don't think about the church. Think about your plans. Why isn't there more money in your retirement account or your children's school account? Right? Why isn't there more money in it? Couldn't there be? Right? Of course there could be. It's because what's most convertible is most divertible. And the minute we accept our sight, rather than our vision, all the resources that God gives us to go towards our vision get converted and then diverted to something else. And life swallows it up. And here's the thing about life. There's a lot of great things in the world. I mean, it actually says in the Bible— God, who created all things for your enjoyment. I can't remember if that's first or second Thessalonians. It's right at the end. All things for your—there's a lot. God actually created a lot of what's in the world for us to enjoy. And when we're not on mission, we will divert everything to those God-created good things. Right? There's this passage that's fairly famous in Pastor Vision Talks called, that says this in Proverbs 29, 18. Where there's no vision or revelation, the people cast off restraint, right? The, the way people like—pastors like to say is where there's no vision, the people perish. That just sounds great for capital campaigns. But what the word vision means there in that context actually is prophetic vision. That is kind of what like Isaiah or Jeremiah did in the Old Testament. That is to take what God has revealed that we already should know, but that we forget, and to tell us again. And to be like, guys, go, remember, this is, this is who we are. This is what we are. Because if you read the rest of that verse, it says, but he who keeps the law is made safe or something like that. Wait, why vision prophetic? And because in this context, the prophetic vision is to put, point us back to what God has already said. The law, in, the, in that case. You see, the idea is, and so what happens when we forget who we are? When there is no prophetic vision to remind us of who we are, people cast off restraint. What's another way to say that? They become undisciplined, right? What causes us to achieve the things that aren't naturally, naturally just simply going to happen? What causes us to achieve them anyway? It's discipline, right? We say, I'm going to do these things deliberately, which will get me to this outcome. That takes discipline. When we don't have discipline, we don't get there. And what he, what this verse is saying is, when we are not reminded who we are, when we do not have, when somebody doesn't come in and reboot our convictional imagination, we lose our ability to be motivated in relationship to the discipline we've got to have to get to where we want to go. And more importantly, where God wants us to go. <clears throat> let me, um, let me tell you like a little bit how this relates to me because it'll, it'll be hopefully an illustration to relate to you. Um, Everybody has what I've called in other sermons a subsidiary passion. That is, our primary passion is meant to be Jesus. But when you take Jesus and you put it together with who you are, um, it'll, it'll kick out a secondary passion that'll be different than other people, right? So for some people it'll be like worship, and other people it'll be prayer, and some people it'll be, you know, 
serving the poor and other people, right? And we all get a little snarky with each other about who's really more biblical and more Jesus-centered. And you just need to take your humility pill and, and call me in the morning, right? I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how churches get stupid, right? Um, you're supposed to actually like the other people have subsidiary passions and different gifts than you, right? Now, mine is teaching and, and learning, like, when you put me together with Jesus, what you get is a guy who wants to just read and read and read and read, learn, 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 put things together, make them clear, and teach them to others so that it'll help them. Right? That's just me. And in my house right now are two things. A book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, a British scholar, that's 504 pages. And it's about um, the Gospels as eyewitness testimony from the earliest writers. It's, it's, a lot of people think it's the best book ever written about the validity of the Gospels as eyewitness testimony, and therefore believable. And I need to read that. That's part of what I should be reading, okay? What's also at my house is, is Netflix on my TV. And um, this has a lot of things on it. And here's what, here's what I find. Um, this really is a passion of mine. Learning and, and teaching and sharing and building people up in that way is part of my convictional imagination. When I'm acting in a disciplined way, I'm pretty good at it. But you know what happens sometimes? When my vision gets hazy about what I'm really here for, my discipline starts to fall apart. And I drink this in very deeply, much more deeply than I should. Um, a few months back, when Adam was here, we were watching Burn Notice. And so we're watching through the Burn Notice episodes. And of course, there's no, there's no commercials. You can watch like three or four in a night. And, you know, the three of us, Lexi and I and Adam, we're all watching together. So it's community, right? So that's godly. And so <laughs> what, what, I, what I realized what was happening is we started out watching them one or two nights a week. But by, as we moved through the show, we were, we were watching every night, like a couple of hours. And I, and I realized— I was off mission. I was like, what am I, what am I doing? Like those, my, I have four children. I'm 35. I'm, this is my calling. These are, these hours are critically important for me at this stage of my life. I need to be doing this for some of it at least, probably the majority of it. I was thinking for those two, two and a half hours I have from when the kids go to bed to when I go to bed, probably two thirds of that needs to be directed towards my vision rather than my ease and comfort. And so I had to make a rule for myself that on Sundays, and Thursdays, which is date night, I can watch this if I want to. And other nights, I need to be doing this. Or even an exception, if I'm doing this, it's because I'm doing my physical therapy exercises. The minute I stop moving, I have to turn off the TV. Right? It's incentive to do my physical therapy, which I just never do. Okay? But I, wh why did I do that? Why did I create rules so I could be a legalist? That is, Nick, oh, wh way to give a great illustration about how you became more religious. No. No, I was reminded of my vision— the vision God has for my life, how I need to live out not just my main passion in Jesus, but the subsidiary passion that has put within it, within it a calling, right? Because if you just say, well, I love Jesus, well, so what? What's that going to make you do? Nothing, right? You just say you love Jesus. Well, that's fabulous. What's going what's to take a demand on your time? Your subsidiary passion. The thing that when you put Jesus together with your personality will drive you to, to accomplish something. Well, that's going to make a demand on your time and your money and your hospitality and your privacy and all that kind of stuff. That's the thing that's going to pull on you. And you see, if you've got a vision, that is what will help motivate the discipline it's going to take to get it done. And sometimes when you have to be disciplined, it, you've got to set rules for yourself. I need to set rules myself because I'm an addict. I love stories. I love TV. I, I love sitting in a chair and not having to think and not having a kid do anything and not do anything for anybody and just 
drink in, you know, scrubs or something, you know? And, but that's not—and that, I can do that a little bit. I'm not wholesale against entertainment, but there's a level of amusement, not thinking, that isn't my calling because of my vision. And so therefore I need discipline. And so it's not enough to just say, oh, we should be doing this rather than that. You've got to ask yourself, where does the motivation come from? And the motivation has to come from vision. You have to have a vision that rejects the acceptance that, look, this is all evenings are supposed for me. I had to reject the idea that this is all evenings are supposed to be. I'm entitled to this. I work really hard. I had to reject that, right? And that had to motivate in me a certain kind of discipline. I've got to set some boundaries for myself and point myself back to what my vision is for my life. And then that discipline fights diversion. I could reach out and pull back that two and a half hours several nights a week so that I could focus on what my vision was. And because of what, that's what my calling is. Now, I want to spend just a couple seconds here on um, what happens when a church loses its vision, right? Here's the short version. When a church loses its vision, one of the first two things that happen is boredom and irrelevance. A lot of people think that the greatest human fear is like death or something, or for most people, public speaking. I've never understood that. But, um, but it, it's, it's, Kierkegaard said it was boredom. It was anxiety over boredom. And you see, when, when you know a church has lost its vision when people come together and they don't expect anything to happen. They don't expect something to be said and for it to hit them. They don't expect there to be encouragement. They don't expect to be, to be the word of God respoken. They don't expect the scriptures to attend on their life. They don't expect the people serving them to do anything. And so they're, they're or th- there's no expectation of delivering anything. Like, I'm just like, yeah, well, they're not going to listen anyway. Or, or I just mail it in, right? That's really—listen, there's, there's a lot of preachers just mail it in, right? Or they email it in, like they steal it off a website. But that ha- starts to happen in a church, and nothing, nothing's expected to happen. And you get irrelevance, and the irrelevance isn't that, the, isn't that the sermon isn't about what people are feeling. Irrelevance comes from nothing actually happens. It's kind of like when you drill for water, and you drill down 90 feet, and the water's 100 feet down. And there was a lot of drilling, but nothing actually happened. And what that tends to do is create a certain kind of panic. Because everybody knows everybody's getting bored out of their minds and nothing's really happening. People start trickling off. And so people think, well, here's what we need to do. We need to make it more grippy. And so churches become more consumeristic and trendy, usually. Because I want to get your attention. Now, I mean, think about it this way. What do you— I, I like to make fun of—I usually make fun of Apple and people who have iPhones. But, but here's a good example, I think, of something I could say good about them. Is what do you think happened the first time people said, hey, we're going to make an iPhone? Do you think they got in there and they said, how can we convince people to buy whatever we put in front of them? Do you think that's how they talk? No. They, they probably were like, how can we make something that blows our minds? Like, literally blows our minds. Like, well, not technically, not literally, but that's how young people say it now. Um, how can we make something so incredible that it would change people's lives so much that they'll camp out intense to buy it, right? They didn't start with what'll get you to spend. It'll, they started with crea- the creation of the thing itself. And you see, the minute you lose your faith in the thing itself, you start trying to figure out how to get people to pay for it, how to get people to do it, how to get them to stick around. And it becomes, it becomes like, you know, buying a used car at one of those old, used, you know, stereotypical whatever. And you're like, oh, I hate being here. And what happens is the minute that happens, the coming to church— starts feeling like a transaction rather than a holy meeting of a God-ordained, vision-filled people who are a family and army together going on a common mission. It's a very different feel. 
And the minute you intrinsically feel like you're a consumer, what happens the minute you start looking, looking to buy something? What's the first thing that you're looking for? It's a four-letter word. Starts with D and ends in L, right? You're looking for a deal. So what happens? Generosity plummets. Because you're not giving to God anymore. You're paying for religious goods and services that aren't very good. Right? Which, which, which puts the church into a further cycle of panic. Right? To where now we realize, listen, if we want to get more out of people and get more people, we should just ask less of them. And so it becomes more and more non-substantive. And I don't—I'm I, talking about in all ways. So, so for example, um, mentally— like, well, the well, sermon shouldn't be mentally— People shouldn't have to think when they come to church on Sunday morning, for heaven's sakes. I mean, it's not like Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your mind. I mean, p- people should be able to come in. They should hear some nice stories, maybe cry a little bit, laugh. You get a good, couple of good laughs, and then out, out you go feeling good, right? We shouldn't be mentally demanding. We, sh- we shouldn't be emotionally demanding. There shouldn't be this sort of expectation that we emotionally engage in worshiping God, loving God, praying to a God that we think is really there, engaging emotionally with other people around us, allow— having compassion, suffering with them, listening to their story, praying for them, asking God to do something. That's emotionally exhausting. We shouldn't demand that from people, surely, right? Or service and serving others through ministry environments to engage and equip people with the gospel or giving. We don't, we don't want to do that because then we won't be con- consumeristic enough. And then here's what the, the final stage is. The church starts to ingrow. It becomes more interested in keeping than reaching keeping everybody happy, which is, of course, no fun. And then what often happens is because the church really isn't interested any longer in fulfilling the whole gospel and the call of its mission in the world, they no longer have a God-filled vision. They just pick a few things that they're good at, and they log their identity into them. And everybody self-congratulates everybody else on the basis of whether or not you're in on those couple of things, on the basis of which God must approve of us. Have you been to that church? The political church? You're a real Christian if you vote this way? Or the single doctrine church? If your view on baptism or the end times or social theory is right, then God approves of you and doesn't he love us? We're all fantastic because we have the right political or theological view. Have you, have you been to that church? It's not good. The gospel isn't. The biblical gospel isn't there. But what people attend to are a few things on the basis of which they approve of one another. And the reason why this is important is that though um, getting off mission will take you places you don't want to go, for a church it's lethal. Churches die. And they always have to be in the process of renewing their vision. Because otherwise, we switch to what we see, we accept it, we divert, and then we go through that process. Does that make sense? Ultimately, it's going to come down to just a few things. It's not going to come down to the functionality of our plan as High Point Church. It's going to come down to whether or not our vision in who God is and what God has done through Jesus is real to us and in us. It is real. The question is, is it going to be real to us and in us? Are we going to be the kind of people who believe in the power of the gospel? Right? We, that we believe what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16 where he said, I believe the, po- the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Or in the work of Christ, do, do you, do we believe that the work of Christ 
is sufficient to set human beings ultimately right with God in all things and to redeem them for the, their eternal God-given creative purpose. And that there is nothing more important than that. Or in the words of 1 Peter, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Or do we really believe in the authority and the sufficiency and the sweetness of the scriptures? Like David said in Psalm 119, about the Bible, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts and hate every wrong path. Your word is like a lamp at my feet and a light for my path. Or in the sovereignty of God, the real belief that God is king, that he's ruler over all things, that he's bringing his kingdom into the world, that he's called us in to be part of that, and we're ambassadors for a kingdom we could have never hoped to be a part of. So much so that when we look at our own sufferings, we're like, eh. Or like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 15, 18, he said to the church, everything we suffer, it's all for your benefit, so that the grace— The free favor of God that is reaching more and more people can cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart, although outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, being beaten, almost killed, shipwrecked, thrown in prison, light and momentary troubles, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our—listen to this vision verse. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do, do we believe that verse in Ephesians 3? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. Um— some of you may know the Pearsons. Just another, another couple that has disappeared from High Point Church, probably because I made them mad. Um, in this case, not true. Um, one of the things you need to realize, and this is one of the reasons why I did not want to spend this morning talking about High Point's vision, because we roll over 15% every year. This is Madison. This is a very transitional town. The point is not that everybody that comes to High Point gets locked into High Point's mission. No, it's that we get locked into the gospel mission because you're all going to leave. Right? Most of us, we got transitional career people. We got people who come in for a little while. We got students. We got all these people, people doing postdocs, PhD studies, vet schools, all, and they leave. Right? And if we, we, we look at the High Point eyes people, that'd be, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? It'd just be a trial on every pastor they ever meet for the rest of their lives and hurt every church they ever go to. Right? It's a professional courtesy, not just gospel-centeredness that causes us to need to focus on Jesus, not on our particular plan, right? So the Pearsons were here like 18 months, right? I mean, they weren't here that long. They came, moved in on a job, moved out on a job. But we, we sent out a couple of emails, talk about your experience here, and Shane and, um, and Katie wrote back, and Katie said, he said, she said, you know what I want you to know about High Point for me? She said, what? When I came there, I realized now, I wouldn't have thought that coming in because I was a churchgoer. She and I went to a church, but we went to a church that we didn't get changed there, really. And so when we got to High Point, um, we had never heard 50-minute sermons that were actually on the Bible before, and it was kind of a lot. But then she said it wasn't that, just that. It was that when we met people at High Point, the people embodied that. 
And so we would listen to teaching, and then we would meet these other couples in Family Life Connection stuff, and we'd look at, watch them, and then we'd listen to this, and, we, and there was this way that these came together, and there was this example that came out of this, this clarity that affected us really deeply. She said, my whole, my whole faith has been completely changed. And she started becoming a small group leader here, and then she's left, and she's doing ministry in the church that they're in now. Shane, um, I don't know how much do you know about him when he was here, but Shane was a college linebacker. He tried out for the Bengals. He's kind of a dude, okay? And so one of the things that guys like that often struggle with is that there's just, you know, masculinity in, as a Christian. How does that go? And if you're a dude, it's hard to become an undude to become a Christian. Nobody really wants that. Usually dudes just don't come to church. And he said, so I, I came to High Point, and he said, one of the things I found when I was here, as I met these other guys, is I, I started meeting masculine Christians. Guys that were strong, but not boorish. They were assertive, but not overpowering. They used their strength to protect love and care for all the women in their lives and everybody around them. They, they, they didn't use power to dominate weakness. They used it to protect weakness and build people up. And I just had, had not seen people so theologically focused and driven by that in such a way that I was like, Okay, I think I know how to—I think I know how to bring the hammer down for Jesus. Okay, this, this, can, this can go. And he said it made a huge difference for him and drove him much deeper into his faith in Jesus because he experienced that here among our people, among this church. All right, I want you to give me just a couple more minutes. I want to show you—I'm going to show you a video testimony because—and here's why I'm telling you these two stories. Because we forget these things happen. We forget that the God who did stuff in the Bible is doing it right now. And that we can move bricks every day. Um, there's a woman who's actually in this service, Lori Real, who came several months ago. And um, I want you to, to hear some of her story. I'm Lori, and I've been coming to High Point for about five months. I was introduced to High Point by my friend Kathy. I've gone to various churches over my entire life. We've probably moved— I've, I've moved no less than 30 times. I've probably been to 20 different churches. Never been to the same church more than twice. Just never really felt connected. Um, but uh, nonetheless, God has been relentlessly pursuing me for my entire life. Religion was not a big deal in our household. We were the occasional churchgoers for Christmas and Easter. And I just remember being at the services and, and feeling strange or, or embarrassed because I didn't know any of the songs and I didn't know, I didn't understand any of the story. I really didn't understand why we were there. Fast forward to 2012, coming to High Point was such, such a pivotal moment for me. We came to a, a, a service just a few weeks before Christmas and for some reason this time it just, it just hooked me. I've been coming just about every Sunday since Early December, I started doing a small group. I got into the Beth Moore study of David and absolutely loved it. What I learned through the study of David is that you don't have to be perfect and you're not expected to be perfect um, to be a Christian. You just have to be 100% in it. That was such a relief for me because I have always been a perfectionist. I've always wanted to be a people pleaser and, and do things for other people first and put other people first. And uh, this time, I know who needs to be put first, um, and that's God. Some of the things that have really helped me feel connected to High Point is 
doing the um, the Get Connected session after church, and then doing the ex the Explore session at Pastor Nick's house. That was that was really neat. That was really eye opening. I really enjoyed that. That's really important that people, new people do that. Um, I remember the, the after I met with Pastor Nick for the first time, and I got in my car, turned on the radio, and just was compelled to turn on 102.5 and remember hearing the song that was on the radio was Mike's chair someone worth dying for right before I had turned the dial I had lifted my hands up in the parking lot and I said God please let me know if this is the right path please help me know that I'm worthy I'm trying and that song came on and it was just I laugh, <laughs> right? I get it, I get it. Okay, I believe, I believe. You know, just being able to come to church and, 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 and sing the songs now and actually know the words uh, because of being in service and also listening to the station. <clears throat> Those things, I mean, anybody that knows me knows that I <laughs> wonder who is this person, but anybody that loves me sees a difference. For, for so many years, you know, we had moved around so many times and I, I just, I never felt a sense of home um, up until uh, I started coming in December. <clears throat> I just always felt like I needed to be somewhere else. I, I always needed to be doing something else or just didn't know what to do with my life. And God has answered that for me. And uh, I'm very thankful because for the first time in my entire life, I feel like I'm home. We've got to stop looking for perfect people, larger institutions, or a greater generation to do what the church is made to do. It's our job. It's doable. Not because we can do it, because, but because the power of the God who can do more than we can ask or imagine, it says in that verse, is in us. We can reject settling acceptance. We can reclaim through God's power the diverted areas of our life. What is most convertible is always going to be easily divertible. And we are always going to live either by sight or by vision. But we can be a community of passionate hobbyists for the glory and purposes of God everywhere we go, no matter what we're in. But that can only, it cannot come about through some kind of adrenaline, emotionally dream. It has to come from a place of conviction. It can't come like adrenaline. It's got to come like a heartbeat. And it's, it's got to come out, and it, it can't just be mechanical. It has to be a conviction that's a moral imperative that comes out through our imagination so that we can see it. And that's the, the, the thing that I think every, everybody has to, has to think about. It's one thing to say, I have faith in a certain amount of content about Jesus. But my question for you is in relationship to vision. When you take that content, you say you have faith in about Jesus. And it comes in as a conviction in your heart. And hope pushes it through an inspired imagination. What do you see? What do you see? In your mind's eye, when you see the people of God, when you see this church, when you see your life, when you see the people you could know, when you see the city you can live in, what do you see? Do you see anything? And does it 
do anything for you. Because it has to. It has to. Or we will accept and divert until the cows come home. I could say that in Wisconsin, right? You guys know what that means? Next week, I'll talk about plan stuff. There's plan stuff we've got to talk about because I want to move some bricks. But we've got to start with what do you see? What do you see? And where is it coming from? Because he can do more than we can ask or imagine. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the patience of these folks. And I pray that in the time we've taken this morning, I pray that you've done something that is helpful hopefully inspiring and strengthening. I pray that you would get glory from it, that people's passion would be in you. Your word, your Christ, your good news, your vision. I pray that we'd be full of a vision inspired by hope that we could carry anywhere in the world and be part of your church and be on mission. And I pray that it would cause us to be in a place where we could make a difference in a way that wouldn't be um, that wouldn't be oppressive to us, but it would be a vision that would build a discipline that moves. We pray in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.